I just, I, I know you're never going to answer that question. Now I'll ask it, and you'll answer. How's it going? Good. good. All right, good. Super. So super. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. So super. I see everyone avoided the splash zone. That's good. All right, so I will, I will, I will get some water, and I'll spit a lot extra so no one, someone's going to be offended. I won't do that. That's a joke. In fact, we should pray just to get me focused. Okay, so let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that, uh, yeah, we can just come in and, and recall your promises, your goodness. I thank you for this morning's time in worship, Lord. You're the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of, the God who we can call upon, Lord, the God who's been faithful then, who's faithful now. Lord, we thank you that you're the same. And Lord, we just turn our hearts to you. We want to, um, Lord, I just recognize that people, even, even in scripture, the ones that are held up for their faith were just normal people just like us. Lord, normal people who, who looked to you and stood upon your faithfulness. And we can do that, Lord. We're capable of that. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, we ask for your spirit. Holy Spirit, would you rest upon this place? Lord, would you give us the gift of your presence, Lord? Would you speak and encourage us, Lord? Would you call us to seek you, put you first above all things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Well, it's happened. It is officially summer. So we made it. Congratulations, everybody. Schools are out. The weather is cooperating, at least for now. And everyone is either on vacation or going on vacation. If you're on vacation, tuning in, <laughs> enjoy wherever you're at. Uh, you're missing out on some great weather here, though. I don't know why people go on vacation in June. Well, actually, no, in July. June is, a, is dicey. That's, that's a good reason to get away from here. Um, but I have to tell you, personally, I find summer, like, a little bit challenging. Um, I'm, don't get me wrong. I like the weather and, and all the stuff and... But it's, it's, it's a spiritually difficult time for me, and that's just because um, I'm a really, like, routine person, and the thing about summer is there are no routines. Everything is different. Everything is thrown out. And so all of my, my strategies for managing my time in my life and my spiritual life, um, they have to change because everything is just thrown out the window. And I always feel, I think like every summer right around this time, I feel really behind the ball in kind of making those changes. Any, anyone else feel this way? This is just me? Am I just talking about myself here? Okay. I think, other, I think some of you might, might feel the same way, right? Because you just have to approach life a little bit differently. So, so what I want to do this morning is I want to think through this question. How can I and how can you stay the course this summer spiritually? Like how is it that we can... Um, get to the end of the summer, like, enjoying ourselves, relaxing, doing the things that we are supposed to do in summer, but also just, just not feeling once September rolls around that we've just kind of been living in a blur, right? And though we've enjoyed ourselves, we haven't really enjoyed ourselves, you know, because that's how I feel through, at the end of summer when I, when I feel just, like, super busy and super distracted and, and, and not focused on, on the Lord. Uh, how can we avoid that? And uh, I was thinking about this for myself and just kind of reading scripture, and I came across the book of 1 Peter. And uh, really what I see First P Peter doing, he's kind of just giving to the church, he's giving the church a pep talk, giving them a little pep talk, a little, a little word of encouragement, not a super long letter, but, but he's, he's going right in and he's speaking to them, he's encouraging them. And, and I thought as I was reading it, like, um, 
that it was just, just really what the doctor ordered. You know, it's exactly what I needed to, do, to, to read to be encouraged. And, and as, I, as I read it and I think, about, think through it, I thought, well, it would be good to kind of just like get a little bit into First Peter here this morning. Because I think I, I would be exactly what we need. Exactly what we need here at I-90. So here goes. Uh, this sermon is titled... Peter's uh, spiritual, what do I, what I call it? I, I probably wrote something down differently. Peter's summertime pep talk. Pep, pep talk. Peter's summertime pep talk. Say that 10 times fast. Don't. Um, now, before I get into this, I think it is worth, worth pointing out the, the, the objection that I had in my heart when I thought about this. Peter is writing to a church, right? And they're, they're in kind of dire straits. They are being persecuted by Rome. And then when I compare persecution by Rome to the summer blues, it seems a little bit trivial. You know, it's like, it's not quite the equivalent, right? <laughs> and so I feel kind of dumb making this equivalency and saying, oh, you Peter's just trying to get you through the summer. <laughs> when he's really like trying to get people through, you know, being eaten by lions and stuff like that. Um, and so, so I want to just acknowledge that. It seems a little strange to compare those two. Like, like when, when my biggest thing to complain about is just the weather's just too nice, right? Or, oh, like, I just had too many vacations planned. <laughs> Going too many beautiful places, right? The comparison seems trivial. But I, I just want to say this, to, to push back on my own cynicism, which is what I'm dealing with, right? And just constantly in my life, this is my biggest problem, my own cynicism. We, we don't face persecution in this, in, in this country. The church doesn't. But we are daily in a battle with what I would argue is the most powerful, technologically driven counter-discipleship machine ever devised, which is the modern American Western lifestyle where we're surrounded by messaging constantly and told that, man, what, what's really going to make for us our, our life is that we just buy some, some new stuff or, or do the next thing, right? We, we live in a culture that is powerfully good at keeping our attention focused on the next thing. That is where we live. So, so, so we are being shaped by a swirl of, of technology and media, and I don't mean like the news media, I mean just generally the stuff, the visual stuff that surrounds us all the time that is keeping us effectively, I would say, from discipleship, not through violence, but through distraction. And now comparing violence and distraction, yes, that seems a little bit trivial, but we shouldn't just write it off because it is a powerful force. The distraction which we are living in, the distractedness of this age, we are being, I would say, the church is being distracted out of kingdom living, and I am regularly distracted out of kingdom living. So whether it's like I'm dealing with something really serious like violence or not, like I am dealing something with something powerful and which is having an impact on me. I think that is worth saying. And the solution, really, for any distraction, we know what, what's, what's the solution for distraction? Focus, attention, right? <laughs> Focusing on the right things, getting undistracted. 
The solution is that we need to be focused, which is, I think, exactly, really, what Peter's advice is to the church as they're being persecuted. It's focus on the right things. He says this. He kind of begins the letter. And I, I'm kind of doing a, a couple of different verses throughout here, scattered. I'm just kind of getting the general sense of it. Go back and read it. That would be my, my challenge to you. Uh, read the whole book. So he says this, uh, starting in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be... God, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Skipping ahead a couple verses. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. You rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, so Peter speaks to them in the midst of their difficult situation, in the midst of the persecution, and he reminds them of things that they already know are true. He says, focus on these things. I need you to remember these things. First, he reminds these believers what they know, that they uh, know what God has done, and that is that through Jesus, they have been given a new birth into a living hope. So he says, I want to remind you, you have new birth into a living hope. He reminds them of hope, and that hope is founded on faith. So hope and faith. Faith that God will deliver and keep his promises. He, he reminds them that they put their faith and their confidence that God will give them an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's saying, saying that's true. Have faith that that's true despite the circumstances in which you are facing opposition or not feeling as, as if God is going to deliver on his promises. You, you, you hold on to faith. He reminds them that there's nothing new to them. Reminding them that's true. And then he commends them because they have love. And, and he basically is saying, well, this love is the thing that's going to get you through. He says, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. He's just telling them, faith, hope, and love. Continue in these things, reminding them of things that they already know. See, Peter's reminder is, 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 is to a church going through persecution is to stir up faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. I think this is like true throughout all of the scriptures. Faith, hope, and love are like the gasoline that make the engine of the Christian life go forward. Without faith, hope, and love, you sputter out on the side of the road. I, I just don't think that's, there's any way you can read the New Testament and not see that. It's major themes throughout Scripture. And so his advice to these Christians is, is if you want to keep going forward, um, you just need to keep your tank full of faith, hope, and love. Start there. Faith, hope, and love. Get your eyes focused on these things. These are the practices that make the Christian life. They are the things that they needed to fight for and that we need to fight for. Them in persecution, we in our distraction, in our busyness, we need to fight for these things and continue to develop faith, hope, and love. And yes, it'd be hard in persecution, but I think it's just as hard in distraction. If you live in a culture like ours, a very cynical culture that's where you're constantly consuming media that is designed to cause you anxiety and make you want things that you don't have, it becomes very hard to hold on to hope. 
if you live in a culture that has completely neglected the value of the inner life, time alone with God, and reduced everything to materialism and, and immediate satisfaction, which I, which I would say is the nature of the culture that we live in, then it is hard to hold on to faith, which is hope deferred, looking to something we do not yet have and yet are promised. Difficult to do that in a culture of immediate gratification. If you live in a world where you are constantly told that your value and, the va and your values are under threat, right? Because, of course, the threat machine is what keeps us coming back to the news over and over again. Because we're all under threat. If you live in that kind of culture, you are going to have a difficult time loving people. Living a life with freedom that comes from love. If you're always worried that around the corner someone or something is lurking. I think it's interesting. Because uh, as we go along, we're going to see that Peter tells the Christians to avoid certain things, right? He tells them to avoid certain things, but he begins by commending these things to them. Faith, hope, and love. I know how to not do things, right? Conceptually, we all understand that to not do something is just like a one-step process, right? Just restrain yourself. But do I know how, as much as I know how not to do things, do I know how to be hopeful, to be faith-filled, to be loving? Like, in my mind, that's a harder thing. It's a lot harder than not doing something. To do something, like, to, to, to possess these virtues of hope, faith, and love. Can I just choose to have faith, to have hope, and to have love. Because that's what I'm telling you you should do, right? Can you do it, though? I, I would say the biblical answer is yes. But I have to qualify that and say that choosing faith, hope, and love, it will not go unchallenged. There are, there are some difficulties to it. There's some mental blocks in our mind about how do we become people of faith, hope, and love. And I'd just like to address some of those this morning. I mean, the, the first is that we are challenged by uh, the, the, an enemy, right? Ephesians 6, uh, 10 through, through, through 11, right? And, and the rest of that chapter is all about, you know, putting on the armor of God. He says this, uh, Paul says this, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. The assumption is that the Christian life is going to be difficult, mainly, and, and at least first and foremost, because we have someone who is against us. We have a, someone who is scheming against us to keep us from walking into and stepping into and filling up our tank with the things that are going to make for our, our life in, in Christ. You have to know that as you step out and you choose to be a person of faith, hope, and love, you are going to have to be dealing with the enemy of your soul. Like, that's why it's difficult, because you, there, it's not just a, a simple step of just doing it. You have an enemy. And as much as you want to be a person who is full of faith, hope, and love, you have an enemy who wants you to be discouraged, defeated, and angry. So what can we do? What can we do? Well, I think, I think Peter has some advice. So he, he goes on. He says this. Skipping ahead a little bit. This is 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 13. He says, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded 
and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as one who has called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So he advises them to be filled with faith, hope, and love. He encourages them, reminds them of those things. And then he says, set your hope completely on Jesus, implying that, of course, we are able to do this, to set our hope completely on Jesus. They are able to choose hope. They're able to be people of faith, hope, and love. But notice this. He connects that command to be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ with have your minds be ready for action. It requires action to be sober-minded and putting our hope entirely on Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love will not just happen to you. That's my big takeaway right here. Faith, hope, and love is not just something that's going to happen to you. You need to approach them with an attitude that says, I'm going to act. I'm going to do everything I can to take steps to be this sort of person who can Hold on to faith, hope, and love, understanding I have an enemy against me, but understanding that that will not keep me from it. Because I'm actually told in Ephesians 6 that I can stand. I can put on faith. I can put on hope. I can put on love. And he goes on, he, he describes the person who does this. The person who is action-minded and set their hope fully on, on, on the Lord. He says, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But be holy as I am holy. He says, he says the person who is action-minded and putting their hope on Christ is not going to be conformed to their old self, but they're going to take on a new pattern of living, one marked by holiness. Here, again, we have a call to do something that we don't always have a quick way of doing. If I tell you, hey, just go be holy, what's your first step? I don't know, you're probably going to start by thinking about it a little bit. Like, well, can I help an old lady across the street? Is that holiness? Right? We have to ask these questions. Like, okay, what does it look like to be holy? Here again, yeah, we're called to do something, but we don't necessarily know how to do it. Can I just choose to be holy? Do you have that ability? And I say the Bible is very clear. In Christ, yes, you do. Yes, that is your calling. To be holy, to be full of faith, to be set apart in Christ. He, he makes it so that you can do these things. Don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of holiness. It was a ministry of equipping people to do things that they could not do in their natural selves. That they needed to be enabled to do, but also taught to do. Jesus came teaching people how to do things they didn't know how to do. Jesus' preaching disturbed people in his day because Jesus didn't set the standards of holiness according to the customs of his time, right? The standard of holiness in, in Israel at the time that Jesus was alive was not, uh, the standard was, was marked not by what you do do, but what you don't do, right? It was avoid these things and that equals holiness, and Jesus came teaching, and he kind of didn't like that idea. He kind of poo-pooed that idea that just avoiding things is not making me holy in the same way that just, you know, 
Uh, not doing certain things does not make me a hopeful, joyful, faith-filled person, loving person. He said this in Matthew 5, 20. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're never going to get into the kingdom of heaven. He says, the standard that I'm calling you to, a life of holiness, a life of love, you're not going to get there with the strategy of the scribes and Pharisees, which is just make a really long list of things you don't do, and then by default you'll be holy. He says, that's not it. See, Jesus didn't define holiness according to what we don't do, but according to what we do do. I had to say it. There was no other way to say it. I apologize. Talking to the Pharisees one time in Matthew 22, Jesus uh, it goes like this. Uh, they came to him, and they asked him, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. The holy man, the holy woman is the one who is consumed by love of God, which will lead them to love of neighbor. And that's the standard of holiness that Jesus sets up, and it disturbs people. Augustine took that teaching to heart. And he drew out the implications. He's got a fairly famous little saying, but I really like. He says this, Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in, the love, uh, in, in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Jesus teaches people that, man, if you set love as your ultimate goal, then you're just going to be obeying the law. You're not going to have to be concerned. When you set the right thing as the goal, you're not going to be concerned about doing all the wrong things. Because if you get your eyes on the right thing, then it takes care of doing the wrong things. Right? The righteousness that Jesus described was not the righteousness of the scribes of, of Pharisees, which is just avoiding a certain number of things which they thought were the bad things that they should avoid. The righteousness that we're called to is to put love before us, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and implied in that is the hope, faith. Th those things come along with that. So look, if you want to make your summer count or your life count, to walk into the plan that we, God has for us, like to walk according to the teaching of Jesus, then we need to learn to love well. We need to learn to love, have love, faith, and hope. Does that help? No. <laughs> right? Just, just, we'll do it. Well, learn to do it. Okay, so we're getting a little bit closer, right? We have to learn to do these things. I mean, Augustine said, the, one tra the soul trained in love. We need to be trained in love. How do we train ourselves in love? In order to be serious about loving people and loving God, we need to rightly consider what stands in the way, right? So we have an enemy. We talked about that already. But what else is keeping you from loving God? What's keeping you from loving God well? What's keeping me from loving God well? This applies to me too. Well, the first answer is sin, right? I mean, sin, and that's, that's this general concept, a Christian concept, like that in your heart, you're just like an enemy of God, and you need your sin dealt with. Like, until you have your sin dealt with, you don't have any hope of becoming a person who loves God. 
and we deal with our sin by trusting Jesus to forgive our sin and to fill us with his spirit, to enable and equip us to overcome the thing that's in the way. That's step one. That's like the, the first thing that needs to happen in your life. If you are not a Christian, and to be a Christian is just, just somebody who has trusted in Jesus to provide forgiveness of sins and to come to Jesus as like, as like a teacher, like as one with whom has the, who has the authority in my life, right? That's step one. That's how we deal with sin on the first and most basic level. That's your first step. If you haven't done that, that's step one. You've got to trust Jesus to deal with your sin. Now, assuming you've already done that, you're already trusted in Jesus, does that solve the problem? No, there's more to do. There's training in righteousness, training in love that needs to be done. You've trusted Jesus to take away your sin. Well, then what? What keeps me from loving God is that I have been formed to love other things first. Myself, stuff of this world. That keeps me from loving God. In my body, in my mind, in my heart, in every part of me, I am trained, I have habits that lead me to love anything or anyone but God. And I need to be trained in love. I need that stuff trained out of me. I need to overcome sin. The sin which no longer, because Jesus paid the price for it, has a, has a hold on me. Like, I can put that stuff away. And in the, the Christian tradition, I think over the last maybe 30, 40 years, we've sort of forgotten how to do this. But historically, Christians have had a really good strategy for how you can become a person. We've called it discipleship or spiritual formation. Dallas Willard, my good buddy, says this. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by such character traits as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Possessed and permeated with the character traits of Jesus, love, faith, hope, joy, these things that he just exuded, like we start to have those things within us, but it's through a process of discipleship because jesus died to take away your sin he died so that you wouldn't be chained to it he died so that you would have the ability to put it away and you could have a life everlasting he died for that but he lived to show us what it is to orient our lives and live in such a way that we would be full of faith hope and love he's our example in that and he invites us to learn to live the same way. But, like we're saying, that's not a passive process. It's not just going to happen to you. You need to take up the work of discipling yourself to Jesus, coming to him as a teacher, training yourself in love. We need to act. We need to have a mind that is ready for action. We need to become everyday disciples if we're going to stand firm in faith, hope, and love. Because if we start to live a certain way that is dependent on and focusing on the things of Jesus Christ, then we're going to start to feel these things that we call faith, hope, and love. You've been around I-90 for a while. You probably have seen like the sign that's out there in the lobby. Um, 
And this is kind of what I'm, I'm, I'm pushing us towards as a discipleship strategy. If you want to know, what can I do today to become a person who is full of faith, hope, and love? I would say you could do these things. I think I've got the list up here, right? I've set them to the acronym BECOME because we can become disciples. You could do these things. I'm just going to talk through these in, in a second here. Well, no, no, yeah. So, like, and, and this is just, look, this is a suggested list. You want to come up with your own list? That's fine. But don't, don't come up with a list, right? Don't just say, eh, I'll probably be a disciple if I sit in church long enough. I promise you, you won't. I tried that. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> the butt in the seat has no special power. It is the mind ready for action. It is the person who just says, all right, Jesus, I want to live my life according to the way you teach me is good. I want to become a person who's permeated with love, with hope, with joy, with peace. I, I want the things you want. And we have to understand, like, Jesus didn't just, like, he, he was full of love. I mean, he, he demonstrated all these things so well in his life, but he didn't do that because he's, he's God. He did that because he set himself to live a life of faith, hope, and love. He trusted the Father in all things. And then he taught his disciples to do the same. That's it. How did the disciples become so faithful, hopeful, loving that they went out and they gave up their whole lives and, and brought the gospel forward and died for the sake of the gospel? They did it because they started to live their life the way Jesus lived their life. They started to live according to trust and hope and faith. They, they, they lived their life. They set their minds to action, and they obeyed Jesus. They took on the yoke, the yoke, the instruction of their master, their rabbi, Jesus. And so these are just some suggestions. And I, I think it would be great if at I-90 we could do these together. And I know we did a whole sermon series on that, and you're saying, didn't we just talk about that? Yeah, we talked about it. Right? That's the problem, right? <laughs> we talk about things all day long. I talk about things all day long. Do I even do all these things consistently? No. This month as I've been on vacation and all these things, like, oh, not a single one. <laughs> right? I just like, like my whole, my, my routines, my habits, they're out the window. And then I start to feel like, oh, I feel anxious and I feel, mm, you know, ask my wife how I've been and she'll just go, she's been like this, mm, he's been like a little baby. That's, that's how I've been the past month, right? Why? It's because I'm just like living a lifestyle and it's out there and I'm, and I'm not like, I'm not seeking the Lord all the time. You know, I, I don't have my routines anymore. And I feel it. It's because I was supposed to feel it. Because I'm called to live a certain type of way. I'm called to live as a disciple. And when I don't do that, I will feel it. That's not broken. That's the way the system's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work for us to be Christians, to be people with faith, hope, and love, is that we give our lives over to the form and the way that Jesus taught us to live. And so I'm just telling you, I'm just like a wide open invitation, become a disciple. If you don't like these ones or you don't like all of them, that's fine. But do something. Come on. We're so good at doing nothing. <laughs> I'm great at it. So, my suggestions to you is you do these six things. Number one, bless one person who follows Jesus and one person who doesn't follow Jesus. 
That says every week. It's supposed to say every day. You see how lazy I am? I just typed it wrong. I, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Uh, it's, it's supposed to say every day. You can do it every day. Just, just bless somebody. Tell them you like their hair. You know, random person. Encourage somebody. Do something intentionally kind to demonstrate love to people. That is really hard to do that every day. It will take training. It will take discipline. It will take reminding yourself three months from now, oh, yeah, I forgot to do all those things. Yeah, I better get back on the wagon here, right? Like, this is the nature of following Jesus. It's, it's we want to become people who are overflowing with love, then we got to start having a mind that's ready for action. Start doing things. If you don't want to do the blessing one person each day, okay, well, what, do you, what are you going to do to positively engage the people around you and show them that you love them? The answer is not nothing. I promise you that's not the answer. That will, you know what? Nothing will yield? Nothing. <laughs> I promise you that's the way it works, okay? So bless somebody. Uh, eat. S eat with someone that you would not normally eat with twice a month. Just s go out of the way. Give an invite. It could be coffee. Eat. That's eating in my book. Coffee is eating. Um, you know, just, just sit down with somebody who you wouldn't normally eat with or, sh or share, share some time with and just do that. Spend time with them. Confess to God and others at least once a week. Spend time sitting before God and just saying, hey, God, like, here's where I'm at. Just taking, taking a, a, a test, a measurement of how things are going, and here are the ways that I messed up, and do so confident, confident that you're coming to the God who's already forgiven your sin, already taken it all away, already proved his love for you, and is like, like keeping for you an inheritance that you can count on. But the, the discipline of confession is just the discipline of coming back to God and taking away shame in my life. That's what confession is for. It's not to make you feel ashamed. It's actually to ensure that you don't ignore your sin and let it fester, and then you start to feel ashamed about it. Because there's no shame between you and Jesus. He's already paid the price for sin. Confession is, the how, is how we live that out and live with the freedom that comes with forgiveness. Open your mouth and talk about Jesus with somebody every week. Just like a casual conversation about what Jesus is doing. Be the weird dude. Be the weirdo who just like, hey, tell you something about Jesus. And you know, most people will probably be like, oh, cool. <laughs> And that's fine. Like, like, you'll be okay. You won't die of embarrassment. Meet with God every day. That's it. Like, like have a prayer life. If you want to have a prayer life, you don't know how, come to this course we're doing Wednesday night. The first, first part is on just personal prayer. Second part is on, like, corporate prayer and practicing spiritual gifts. Come out to that. Um, and examine your life every day. So at the end of your day, and I, and I, 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 I when I taught on the, this, I, I came, uh, this phrase is really important. Examination, again, is not like, Oh, here's all the things I failed in. Examination is, is taking an inventory of God's grace in your life. Examination is saying, man, God, how faithful have you been to me today? Let me count the ways and then do that. Like, where did you show up? Where were you working? What were you reminding me of? What, were, what things were you gently and kindly encouraging me to do? And maybe I didn't listen, right? Just, just take that time with the Lord and ask him. Examine your life. Now, look, again, like, you can choose to do these things, you can choose not to do these things, but a mind ready for action is a mind that has, 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 has 
taken account of this fact, and that is to become a person of love. Actually, it's, it's not like a direct line. I don't just choose love. Actually, I choose to start to live a kind of a life that accounts for the complexity of my inner life with all my selfishness and all the lasting um, impacts and habits that I formed that are, that are sinful, right? And that I need to start to deal with those things. And the only way I can deal with these things because I don't have, I, I <laughs> believe it or not, you do not know yourself entirely. I do not know every part of me. I come to understand what I'm like and what I do and how I act as I examine my life and kind of set up challenges and am reflective about the way I've lived. That's what this is. This is setting up a goal to be a certain way. And if you start to check off all these things on the box, like, like that isn't the point. The point of doing these things is you're going to experience difficulty as you do and you'll start to realize what the obstacles are in your heart to faith, hope, and love. This is, the point of this is not that, oh, you did all six? Good, good boy or girl, like, good job. You will, you will never do all six, by the way. <laughs> you will almost always fail. But the more that you do, the more you develop these habits, you will start to have exposed to you, and you'll start to have knowledge about all the things that are in the way of you choosing faith, hope, and love. And then you'll slowly be able to deal with those, probably over the course of decades. Isn't that fun? Isn't that fun? I actually do, I think it's fun because honestly, like, I think life in America is a little boring. I think a lot of us are really bored. Wouldn't it be great if we could start to do these things and like just be like so astounded and excited about what God does in your life? That'd be the most like like I've seen every movie in the world. They're starting to be boring. The one thing I haven't done is become a person of consistent faith, hope, and love. And I think that'd be the thing that would most excite me of all. But sometimes you need a little pep talk to keep going. So there you have it. Keep going. I just want to wrap up here. First Peter 2, 1 through 5. He says, therefore, rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Right? See, you're saved and then you grow up into your salvation which is the stuff we're talking about. <laughs> like you, you grow and you give your life more and more to Jesus if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built up into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is like laying out a bold and audacious plan for the church. It's not, ah, you'll survive and then you'll go to heaven at the end. It's you are, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Have more vision for your own life and what it could be in Jesus Christ. You are being built up into something, something beautiful, something, something awesome. Um, I was thinking about how to, how to think about this, and uh, the worship team is going to come up now, and I'll just kind of wrap up. Um, think of a tent, 
right? A tent needs what to pop? <laughs> it needs poles. That's right. It needs poles, right? It needs poles. But my kids, my kids are, my kids are funny. Sometimes they take over the living room and they get duvet covers, right? And they make a tent with the duvet covers. How do kids make tents with, tents with duvet covers? A fan. That's right. Oh, my wife, she, she knows. Our kids, yeah, that you could do chairs, that's right. But our kids get a fan, and they put it at the end, and then they wrap it up, and then they turn the fan on, and it blows up. It, it blows up the tent, and then they get inside, and it's like they're in this, I don't know, thing. And that's fun. But the minute they turn off the fan, what happens? It's just a du duvet cover on the floor again, right? It's no longer a tent. To me, that image is, is interesting because, because honestly, I think about what the church is. I think about what we are called to. And I see things like what Peter says. He says, you're, you're called to be living stones, a spiritual house built on the holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I got I to be honest, that puts the pressure on you, doesn't it? Like, like, if we're going to have a spiritual house, if we're going to have a church, if we're going to be the sort of people that we're called to be, people of faith, hope, and love, like, if we're going to have an effective ministry into the world, we're going to reach Western Washington for Jesus, then it is required of us as individuals, members of this church, to be people who are taking on this call to be living stones. And I think, honestly, like, the church has... And I, and, I, and I love the church, and I've, and I've benefited from the church, but we've stopped really caring about discipleship so much, and we just cared about getting the tent up any way we can. And so we, we hire a, a pastor who's able to blow a, a lot of hot air <laughs> into the tent, and it stays up, and we think, look at this great tent we've got. We've built something great for Jesus. And then the fan turns off, and it just goes, because there's no integrity to it. The integrity comes from us giving our lives to Jesus as living stones. Like a, like a tent pole, right? Tent pole comes in different parts, right? And those things need to, number one, they need to be unbreakable. If it was made of pasta, wouldn't stay up. And then those tent poles need to come together. You piece them together, right? You've done this before, right? It's really annoying. <laughs> it takes some work, right? I think that, that, that metaphor works well, right? But then, when you take these things that have been strengthened, that can bend, but not break, and you put them all together, and you put them in the tent, then the tent is going to stay up. It's going to stay up. And so here's what I want you to think of. Like, you're called to be living stones. We're called to be a spiritual house. We're called to have, be people who are giving our lives to Jesus because that's where the strength of the church is going to come from. Not because we have great lights or music or anything, but that we are people who, like, are giving ourselves to what God has called us to. The church needs to change. We live in an age where I think the church has like, man, we've had some rough couple years here. And I think 
the primary way that we need to change is we need to start to understand, it's like, this will only work if we're living as disciples. It's the only way that we have the strength that we need. And so that's my invitation, guys. I need to hear that. I need to be strong and strengthened so that we can be built into living stones, and you need it too. I am not a special person. I promise you. And I don't want to just be blowing hot air. (laughs) I want us to be a church that is being strengthened by Jesus. And so then we're going to be a church of disciples. So let's, let's do that together, okay? Hey, so we're going we're gonna to worship the Lord together. And uh, yeah, let's just worship. And then maybe we'll pray. Probably we'll pray. Let's worship first. Okay, cool. Let's stand up.